Hello, I'm Vernon Mann. It's the late 1970s. The Iranian Revolution is hotting up. Come with me to the Tehran Intercontinental Hotel, home away from home for journalists from all over the world covering this big story of the day. Every ongoing trouble spot has its media hotel, a place offering reasonable food, a bit of comfort and hopefully a drink after a hard day's reporting, but above all, good communications, reliable phone lines and telex machines. Telex machines, I hear you cry? How to explain? The machine is like an electric typewriter transmitting over a subscription phone line. If you're a reporter and your newspaper has subscribed to the service, you simply type in your number and, when connected, type in your story, which will print out at the other end. Magic in these pre-internet, pre-mobile phone days. Meanwhile, our masters in London are delighted with our endeavours so far. We've beaten the opposition quite a few times. In a very rare incoming phone call, it's near impossible to dial out, the foreign editor says, Well done, chaps. Make sure you eat well and don't spare the caviar. A remark he must surely have regretted when our expense claims came in later. The hotel dining room, five-star in the early days, a sad café at the end, is the only place we can eat. There were a few unlicensed restaurants open in the early days, but they closed at the first sign of trouble and eventually put their shutters up to await revolutionary developments. So, sanctioned by our management, we eat a lot of caviar. A hundred grams, sir? Nah, make it two. All washed down with a selection of fine wines from the hotel's top-of-the-range cellar. I eat so much caviar, I even now feel ill just looking at it. But I do look forward to these dinners when I'm not learjetting backwards and forwards to Jordan. There's a black market in Tehran. You can get four times the official exchange rate for the US dollar by changing money in a back alley rather than the hotel. Journalists, of course, are quick to cotton on to this, submitting their expenses at the official rate and pocketing the difference. They persuade the hotel kiosk, which sells basic stuff like newspapers, cigarettes and confectionery, to stock more expensive items. Within weeks, you can buy, for example, an Amiga watch or a Dunhill cigarette lighter. I confess to buying both. Just put it on my room, Mr. Mann, room 629. Thank you very much. Well, I wasn't being paid danger money or overtime. Pre-dinner entertainment in the Intercontinental Hotel consists of radio-controlled toy tank battles between media groups staged along the corridors on the brown carpets outside our rooms. If you want to fight, you line up your tanks outside your room and shout, Come out and fight! Doors open, tanks emerge, and within minutes the air is thick with plastic missiles, rubber stickers on their ends, tank commanders loudly barking orders. I don't think we ever declare a winner, just play until we get bored. Hotel staff are unsure whether they should treat us as honoured guests, Western infidels or children. The entertainment doesn't last long. The tanks soon fall apart, like Iran itself. You can't buy a new one. The media cleared the toy shop stocks early on, before the strike shut everything down. So the tanks are finished, and so are KLM's Delft China Blue miniature houses filled with gin, handed out to us in business class on the way out. We were supposed to get only one, but persuaded the flight attendants to give us a few more. We've been having a ceremonial sip every night at six. We shall miss it. As the revolution progresses, demonstrations go larger and Islamic fervour intensifies. 
the hotel management comes under verbal revolutionary fire for hosting journalists. By November, buildings housing Western businesses are being torched. The hotel fears they could be next. By this time, it's become obvious that it's only a matter of time before the Shah makes his excuses and leaves. Hotel staff begin to gather in the corridors, waving their Korans and shouting, God is great, in a state of great excitement. Our needs as guests are now not their first priority. On a cold, damp Tuesday, a gang of seven or eight fundamentalists turn up with guns and order the hotel to destroy its cellar of fine wines, champagne and spirits, beers as well. The sommelier insists he take charge, supervising staff, as they load case after case of expensive wines and champagnes onto trolleys, drag them into the street, pop the corks and pour everything down a drain in the street. Spirits and beers came next. The air is thick with alcohol fumes. The sommelier folds his arms and watches like a captain on a sinking ship. Sunglasses hide his pain. The world's media representatives look on in horror, distressed at the thought of the alcohol-free days ahead. And the sheer waste, a hundred thousand dollars of booze, they reckon, gone literally down the drain. The man from the Daily Telegraph wipes away a tear. Colleagues say his report, his lament, is one of the most moving stories he's ever written. Things start to change at the hotel. They say it's not wise for us to congregate in the lobby area, viewable from the street. We're to use staff entrances at the back. They close the restaurant. Our caviar days are over. We can now only have basic stuff like burgers and fries or sandwiches. The food is served in a couple of dingy rooms at the back of the hotel, set aside for the media to use as a lounge. They kindly supply a VHS player and hook it up to the TV. There's a limited supply of tapes and frequent arguments, one violent, over which old movies to watch. It's all rather sad. The hotel staff are wary of talking to us in the growing anti-Western climate. As our basic home comforts decrease, on the streets, things are hotting up. Demonstrations increase in size. Soldiers and the police seem a little less keen to intervene. Our fixer Jamshid's been living at the hotel, at our expense, for several weeks for his safety and our convenience, and consolidating his position as the media hotel's top drug supplier. He never puts his dealing before his duties, and he knows exactly what our competitors are up to. I bitch about missing a protest, a demonstration, but he says not to worry, there was only one news agency cameraman there, and he was so stoned he wouldn't have been able to focus. He's right, there's no footage of the event. He calls my room one afternoon and says he's got me a present. I go down the corridor to his room and find him in bed with a naked Iranian girl who's been hanging around for a day or two. She smiles at me and waves me towards the bed. She's rather nice, and I realise she's my present. I politely decline. Jamshid miffed, insists, saying, But Vernon, you have to have her. I have made her ready for you. I'm out of there. Truly. Jamji really believed his present would be appreciated. Later he offers the girl to the correspondent. He declines too. One of our cameramen, an older gentleman, is not so squeamish, but I warn him off. On January the 6th, 1979, Jamji bursts into the room we use as an office and yells, Shai's going! Shai's going! 
We get to the airport just in time to grab grainy distant pictures of the Shah's plane lumbering down the runway, barely able to take off for the weight of the booty aboard. Within minutes, the long-suppressed city comes alive. People hug each other with joy, smiles on their faces for the first time in many, many months. Soldiers put flowers down their gun barrels and smile as well. There's much kissing and hugging. The revolution has succeeded in ousting the Shah. I hop on the Learjet to Jordan and run into the film processing lab at Jordanian TV, excited at the events I've witnessed, visual history in my hand. I am greeted by a dour little man who says he might be able to process our film in a couple of hours or so. What? I need it now. The story has to get to London by news time. It's historic footage for God's sake. He will not be persuaded. He says the processing lab is chock-a-block with footage of King Hussein's public appearances earlier in the day, when he'd visited a dozen old people's homes. Hundreds of feet of film, maybe thousands, have to go through the lab before mine. I offer him cash to put it all out, or whatever he has to do to put ours through the lab first. With a sigh, he offers me a cup of mint tea, motions that I take a seat, and explains, as to a child, the king takes precedence over your revolution. We make the news that night with seconds to spare. That's the end of this episode. I'm Vernon Mann. Join me next time for the arrival in Tehran of Ayatollah Khomeini. Goodbye for now. Thank you.